Well, good morning. Thank you. Uh, is, is, are, are there any of those kids' stools in the bathroom? Because I think I could use one. Oh, well, okay. Can I move this out? Can I turn this out of the way? All right. Well, it's good to be here. Um, we were, Heather and I were here two, last week, two weeks ago, to worship here. It's been great to... To get to know the students and um, to get to know some of you a little bit as we've as I've been around and it's a privilege to uh, preach today. Our passage for the day is uh, Psalm chapter six. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you love us. Uh, We thank you that your love took on flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, We thank you that your love in that flesh took on sin and death for us. Entered death and hell. For us, and is now raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as our salvation, our redemption, and our hope. We pray that we would leave here in that hope this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I had the I've had the privilege of doing a, some extra schooling uh, recently, or somewhat recently. And as a part of that, in May of 2016, uh, we did a, a, a trip to London, visiting churches in London. If you don't know, in, in America, we are experiencing a, a post-Christian turn. What's called post-Christianity or a move towards post-Christianity, well, England and the churches in London are 40 years ahead of us. And figuring that out or trying to figure that out. And there was this particular moment that stands out in my mind and has kind of been percolating in my thoughts and and, uh, since then. It was this day that we took a trip and we toured the Tate Modern Museum, um, which is a a museum of modern art. And among uh, its notable pieces, prominently displayed... 
uh, is a, a work by a man named Marcel Duchamp. Uh, he, it's a, a piece from 1917. It kind of sits uh, between modern and postmodern art. It's an art form called Dada. And the sculpture is called The Fountain, uh, which I don't know what that conjures in your mind. It's probably lovely. <laughs> um, but this uh, fountain was actually just a porcelain urinal, or urinal as our guide called it. I love that. It sounds so much better. Just turned differently than you would experience it if, if you walked into the wall of a men's bathroom. And this um, was central to, uh, to, the, to our move through the museum. And then, uh, after we left the museum and taking in a, a, the art, uh, we... If you go out the back, you're looking over the Thames, and across the Thames uh, is the St. Paul's Cathedral. It's on, on the highest uh, part of the city. It was originally founded in 604 A.D. It's a beautiful and majestic Anglican cathedral. And for more than 1,400 years, it has stood as a historic icon of Christendom. And... From the Tate, spanning the Thames, is the Millennial Bridge. The Millennial Bridge, if you don't know, it's the bridge that the Death Eaters blow up in Harry Potter 7. It was built in June of 2000. It's the lowest suspension bridge in the world. It's modern construction is utilizing a, a historic uh, uh, technique, but it sits there and it, uh, between the Tate Modern and Paul, St. Paul's. And in a very real way, this bridge embodies something of what I think we're dealing with as the church in a post-Christian turn. The bridge invites us to reflect on the confluence of history and the future, right? The Millennial Bridge. It also highlights the connection and the distance between the two. And as I stood there, I was struck by those tensions, by the in-betweenness of that moment and the surrounding icons of moments past, present, and future. We've experienced all that today here in this worship service. Ancient scripture texts, historic confessions of faith, Present uh, 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 prayers of our own needs and desires, and also our hopes for the future and our desire for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We are living in a moment that invites us to ask how do we live into that space? How do we live into the reality of our past, our present, and our future? How do we live into the post-Christian moment? Not only are we dealing with the post-Christian moment, but we're also dealing with what's um, becoming known as the great de-churching in America. Jim Davis and Michael Graham in their book called The Great De-Churching say this, 
What we have witnessed in the last 25 years is a religious shift about one and a quarter times larger, but going in the opposite direction. It's not growth. It's decline. It's leaving. In that time, they go on to say, about 40 million people have stopped attending church. Most people have left the church in the last 25 years. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and the Billy Graham crusades combined. That's our moment. Adding to the alarm is the fact that this phenomenon has rapidly increasing. It's on a steep incline, at least by all indicators. So what are we to do? How do we step into the moment that we inhabit in this space between the past and the future, or even the past, the present, and the future? Why are we in this moment? What do we have to offer? Well, I think the Psalms, in all their varied forms, offer us a way through. So all of the scriptures do. But I'd like to think about um, this in terms of what makes the Christian message compelling? What might make it compelling again? Or forget again. What might make it compelling to your neighbor? Or to your own soul. I think our psalm today uh, brings us to something that I believe is compelling about the Christian faith. Something that we need to, uh, I think, in a sense, get back to, to reown, to have it shape us in the way we inhabit and embody the faith. In our world, the Psalms begin with Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 begins with happy is the person. Psalm 2 ends with happy is the person. Psalm 1 and 2 are thought to be kind of put together as an introductory invitation to the Psalms. And, And what that invitation is, is an invitation to happiness, an invitation to blessed life. This is the life that is blessed. And it moves through um, five books as they're arranged uh, throughout the Psalter. And the five books kind of crescendo with a, um, with a concluding doxology all the way to the end with a, um, a, a psalm, of, uh, psalm 150 that is just praise. So happy is the person is the invitation of the psalms. And I want us to ask ourselves the question, are we confident that we can say with Psalm 6 that happy is the person who grieves? Happy is the person who weeps. Happy is the person who cries out to the Lord, how long? And I wonder if we've lost the ability to enter that space the way the Psalter invites us to. Psalm 6, the heading of it, it, we are told that it's according to the Shemineth, Shemineth, which is on the lower register. It's the low end. It's the low notes. This is to be played in the minor keys. This is a dirge. 
We are called here in Psalm 6 and throughout the Psalms at times and places to bring the music down and to sing the blues. And the psalm invites us there, and the Psalter invites us to understand that something of the pathway from happiness, the invitation to happiness, to the move to 150 of, of full and final praise is our ability to weep. This is a psalm about suffering, a song about grief. Mike Berbiglia is a, a comedian, stand-up comedian. And um, he says in a, an interview on This American Life, he says, I'm Italian, and my family is Italian, but we're not real Italian. We're like Olive Garden Italian. <laughs> Some of you, when I talk about suffering, you, you may think something along the lines of, yeah, but I haven't really suffered. I'm more like an Olive Garden sufferer that you feel uncomfortable actually taking on suffering because you, you think about your own suffering and you, you realize that it's not as great as maybe, I don't know, we just prayed for Morocco and Libya and, and Haiti. And so you compare yourselves. But grief is not a competition. And this psalm is vague and open in terms of the source of David's suffering, I think, is an invitation to bring your grief in with him whatever it is, not by comparison. It's an invitation to recognize that grief is real and that we're invited to bring it, all of it. We're invited to enter fully into the psalm and sing our grief truthfully and fully. All of us, if we're paying attention, are constantly suffering the tension between the way the world is and the way it's supposed to be. We see that it's broken and frustrated, and we also know that we were made for better, even if only instinctively we know. You don't have to look far. It doesn't take the Bible to know that the world is broken. Pop culture is full of people telling us the story of brokenness and hurt. They're asking the question, how long? All of us suffer. All of us are surrounded by grief. We bump into it every day. Every morning I wake up to a, that little bell on my Facebook feed with a, with a red uh, indicator that somebody in my network has done something new. And there's one person who is posting every day pictures of her husband and children. Every memory, every day, she wakes up to a memory on Facebook of her husband who died recently. Every day. And I see that little indicator, and I don't want to go look at it, but I do for her sake. Because I want to hold vigil with her in that grief. The Psalms inviting us to lean into holding vigil with our neighbors and with our world 
in the grief and suffering it is experiencing. I have an email from a friend. Starts like this. I am despaired, saddened, ashamed, and alone. God has always taken care of me and been there for me, but somehow that bond is lost to me at this time. Even when I did not walk in the path, he was always there for me, and I knew he would not leave me. I'm not sure this time. This person has had something very devastating happen. And she's asking, how long? I think if we're to, bring, to have a compelling story to tell, then we have to be able to honestly face the grief and suffering of our own hearts and our own lives and the world around us. Because if we don't, the good news just rings hollow. Fleming Rutledge, in her book on the crucifixion, says Americans are known as the Pollyannas around the world. And that's not a good thing, by the way. And we do, we have this can-do spirit, like nothing's going to stop us. But in that can-do spirit that is certainly a part of who we are and a part of our productivity and and our, our national story, we often refuse, absolutely refuse to name the brokenness around us and to sit in it and to grieve over it. And the Psalms, if they're anything, are an invitation to that space. The psalm book is the prayer book of the Bible. If we are going to worship God truly, then it must take on the language of the psalms. So can we take on this language of grief and suffering? I want us to look at two things as we do this. We're going to look at the psalm's content, and we're going to look at its form. How do we do this? The first is that the, the content is, we've been talking about it, it's, it's grief. Um, a, a little dated reference on this, uh, this notion of grief, but just another indicator of our la- loss of ability or lack of ability to enter into it. Uh, Michael Gunger, who's a, a Christian contemporary artist, um, he wrote about this back in 2012, and he says approximately... All right, listen to this. Approximately 70% of the Psalms are laments. Think about this. It's really about two-thirds. I think he's, he's maybe overinflated it just a little. But if you will, two-thirds is a lot, right? That's, the major- that's over the majority. You can't read the Psalms without coming upon the lament. It's not possible. 66%. And here's what he says, approximately 0% of the top 155 Christian contemporary songs that are used in the worship of the church are laments. What does that tell you about the story we're telling ourselves? In writing this, he says, I got a lot of responses, and here's what some of them said. That's sad. It's true. Why would we have to lament we have Jesus? That's probably the most common misunderstanding. Because the psalm book, the psalms, 
are Jesus' prayer book. One person said that if you want to know, we don't really know what's going on in the mind of Jesus or the apostles as they walk around in their lives, but if you want to know, read the Old Testament. Jesus was embodying the Psalms as he walked through his life. This is why when he was on the cross suffering, what comes to his lips? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some, he says, even accuse me of living in the wrong covenant. Another uh, study that's more recent, in the top 25 uh, Christian contemporary worship songs, not a single question is ever posed to God. The top 25, he says, never ask God anything. Prick the Psalter and it bleeds the cries of the oppressed, pleading with God to act. Psalm 6 is a a sustained look at suffering. The psalmist says that his suffering, um, he feels like he is under God's wrath, he is under God's thumb, he is being pressed down. And at the same time, he feels like God is nowhere to be found. Verse 4, turn, O Lord, return to me. Your head is heavy upon me, but come back to me. He's feeling that, that um, dual um, kind of uh, irony of feeling like God is right on you, pressing down, but also nowhere to be found. If you've ever suffered, you know this reality. Come back, O oh Lord, return to me. Suffering for David is a cosmic moment and feels like, uh, in which he feels like God is cosmically far away. And right in his lap. This grief is inescapable. He says it is suffering. In his suffering, he is languishing. He is wasting away. He says his bones are troubled. His soul is troubled. The word means disturbed, dismayed, terrified. His whole person is troubled. In verse 6, he points out, it's this, we see that his, this grief is relentless. He is weary with moaning. When grief is deep enough, you moan. You moan in pain, in physical emotion. Some of you have heard the weeping, weeping like this. Some of you have heard it come from your own body. And you know how otherworldly it is. You know what it's like when you hear it from somebody else, you can, you can identify it and you run to it because you know it comes from somewhere else. It's physical, it's mo- emotional. He says, David says he's moaned so much that he's made him weary. He's afraid that he's going to drown in his own tears. After his wife died, Lewis felt like his grief was inescapable. And here's what he says. He says, her absence is like the sky spread over everything. I've said to my own therapist, it's like I'm walking through the world with a veil. And everything I see is dim. Everything. But you, O Lord, how long? He asks. 
The psalmist, as he enters this grief and he begins to name it, he's trying to pull himself out of it. He says, my bones are troubled. My grief is is so um, heavy that it's breaking my body. It's pushing my life down, and I can't stand it any longer. And he's trying to reorient himself and get his vision onto something else. And so he says, but you, O Lord... And he wants to fill in that blank with some proclamation of God's power or nearness or his grace. But you, O Lord, what? What can I say here? But you, O Lord, Psalm 3 gives us a a possibility. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Psalm 86, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 92, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. Psalm 102, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Lamentations 5, but you, O Lord, you reign forever. Jeremiah 12, but you, O Lord, know me. And David gets to this point, and he's, it's, it's like he, he's looking for it, and he's searching, but all he comes back to is, how long? How long? But you, O Lord, how long? It's like a a pilot trying in a nosedive. The psalmist is uh, pulling back on the throttle and he's trying to throttle up for full power, but it's not enough. And he comes back to it and says, I'm still grieving. I'm trying to correct my grief with something true. I'm trying to counteract my sufferings, but all I can muster is how long. It's relentless. Does it feel relentless? So here's an application, brothers and sisters. Grief and suffering can be relentless. And part of our call and Psalm 6's call is to be able to enter into it right there. To find the ability to sit in that space and not fix it. Can you do that? I didn't pick Psalm 88, but I could have. Psalm 88 goes through a relentless recounting of suffering, and it does not resolve. So this notion is biblical. There is no pulling out of the nosedive in Psalm 88. Can we see suffering for the real deep pain and sorrow that it brings and enter that space and sit in it and name it and not try to hand wave over it. One of my favorite expressions is Jedi mind trick our way out of it, right? These are not the droids you're looking for. By the way, that's not the Christian message. The the, the Christian message does not say suffering is not real and it doesn't matter. That is not what Jesus came to teach us.
we are called to see and enter into this space and go right up to the point where we think we might find our way out of it and then come back with David to the question of how long, O Lord? See, you and I live in a world where even in the midst of our suffering, we can at least imagine that there's a horizon out there. I can tell you, I've been in a situation where the horizon was gone. I couldn't see it. I didn't know what was on it. But I still could conceive of it. There are people who live their entire lives with no sense of a horizon in their suffering. And the gospel comes there. C.S. Lewis, in his work on a grief observed after the death of his wife says, um, I thought I could describe a state, sort of make a map of sorrow. That was his goal, was to sort of navigate his own grief and make a map of sorrow. That's what he was trying to do. It didn't really work for him. One self-help website says, This, he says that all of our suffering suffering is a result of pity. Here's a quote. When we discover that our self-pity explains our suffering, we emerge at last. Eventually, our self-pity shrinks and disappears. We are not angry anymore. We don't get depressed anymore. We're not stuck anymore. We sail free. Doesn't that sound awesome? Well, there you go. Just stop feeling sorry for yourself. And you'll be set free. But in the Christian uh, theological dish, tradition, we can do a similar thing. We have a number of explanations for suffering. We call it the problem of evil. In Lewis's work, he called it the problem of pain. He t- in the problem of pain, he says, I must add, too, that the only purpose of the book is to solve the intellectual pro- problem raised by suffering as if suffering is an intellectual problem. But what he goes on to say is that intellectual explanation finally doesn't help my life because after I've explained suffering, I still have to live with it. The psalmist has given up on trying to address his suffering with an explanation. He sees that even with an explanation, he will still suffer. He knows that an explanation won't finally solve the problem, so he says, what I need for you, uh, Lord, is to act. And so he says, so turn, O Lord, and deliver my life, verse 4. I don't need an explanation. I need for the Lord to do something about this. Turn, Lord, because in this suffering it feels like you have turned away, like you've gone somewhere else, like you've got other business to attend to. uh, Heather and I have said at one point in our lives, we felt like we're somehow off the map. You know out there where the dragon is on the map? That's where we've been. Right? It feels like God has forgotten me. It feels like I'm on the edge of death, looking over the edge into Sheol, he says in verse 5. The dark wasteland where there is no life, it's the place of the dead and dying at death. And he says, I can see myself down there in that dark place. 
And I'm fairly certain that if I fall in, I won't remember you, Lord. When I hit bottom, there will be no remembrance of you. So please, Lord, act. Don't let me, don't let me hit bottom. All right. We're squirming. We feel it. And that's because Christianity actually makes, if I can say this, suffering worse. It brings us face to face with the full tragedy of it. Injustice, abuse, neglect, violence, death, disease, loss. We know these things because the Christian story teaches us that they do not belong in this world. They are an intruder, and they were the world that God made was made good, very good. And we were made to be his image bearers in the world and to live out that goodness as his image bearers and to live with that goodness and as uh, uh, purveyors of that goodness, cultivators and curators of it. The story of the Bible is not a story of some detached heavenly existence, but a God who loves the world and made it and actually bound himself to it. And it's good. Like he bound himself to the world and it's good. It is in this suffering that we find the biblical story and God himself is actually in touch with the world as we know it. These are the word, the, the psalm is the word of God and so these are the words of God. So as we think about David and his uh, uh, offering up his own sense of suffering, this is, these are also God's words to us and for us. He is not a stranger to it. He actually can put our suffering and the suffering of the world into words, and he has put it into words before you or I ever felt it. And this is why the psalm ends the way it does, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist knows that God hears him. There's nothing in the psalm that indicates that anything's changed. Just that David moves from the honesty of his suffering to the acknowledgement that God hears him and knows his suffering and his prayers and his desire for, David, for God to act on David's behalf. Seven times there, the psalmist calls God Yahweh, his covenant name. He calls him I Am, the name that God gave Moses when God heard his people crying out in slavery for deliverance. This is the name that God gave him to tell Israel who would be their deliverer from slavery into the promised land. This is the God that they know as their God, their covenant God, Yahweh. Seven times David names him and he appeals to God and his hesed, his covenant love, his loyal love for his people. And here's what I want us to understand as this psalm moves. Um, and uh, Lewis brings this out so beautifully as he often will. He, he says, I thought I could describe a state and make a map of sorrow. 
That's what I read before, but here's what he said. goes on to say, sorrow, however, turns out to be not a state but a process. It needs not a map but a history. You hear that? Your sorrow and your suffering don't need a map. They need a history. And the history that David appeals to is the history of God's committed love to his people. The history of the God who says, I am Yahweh, that's who you tell them, who is about to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh. Exodus 3, 7, 8, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have gone down to deliver them. David is appealing to God who has delivered in the past. And the invitation is for us to appeal to our history of the God who has delivered us in the suffering of his own son, Jesus, on the cross for our sin, but also for the injustices in the world and the grief in the world and the brokenness in the world and the harm that's been done to us and maybe the harm that's been done by us. Our, our hope is not that we have a map that somebody can describe grief, but that we have one who has entered into it, and we know that in history, in time and space, he has dealt decisively with it, and we, like the Psalter, can move from the invitation to happiness through um, lament and praise and all of this to a crescendo of praise because that's where the story is taking us. It's in the suffering of Jesus that suffering is put to death. Grief is not antithetical to our spiritual maturity. It is a significant pathway to it and a mark of it. If we're going to tell a compelling story to the world, then we have to learn to tell a story that is honest and honors grief and suffering. And this is where we come to the form. The form of this is it's a song. It's a song. It's a song not simply of an individual. Um, it is a song of an individual believer, but he also offers up that this is for the choir master. This is a song to be sung in the congregation. This is a song to be taken up by us corporately. And here's why. I'll close with this. Because the Psalter and the Psalms are here to give us the language that we may not even know we need. And when we sing this language together, one of the things that we do is we're invited, like I think is what happens with David as he begins to turn and say, the Lord has heard my plea. We're invited to inhabit the truth of the song, even when we may not feel it. And here's what I can tell you is existentially true. There are times when I'm in the congregation and we're singing words, and I absolutely do not feel it. 
Sometimes I'll sit down because something else is going on in me. But in that moment, what needs to happen is the rest of you need to keep singing for me. Because that's what we're doing. We're doing this for each other. And actually, if we're really the priesthood of God, which scriptures say we are, we're also doing it for our neighbors, for the world around us. And the Psalter is an invitation for us to sing the story of God with each other, for each other, and for our world. And we do this not because we're able to carry this thing forward in ourselves, but because we know that the life, death, and resurrection is bringing it about. And so what we do, along with David, when we say, the Lord has heard my cry, we're singing ourselves forward into Psalm 150 that is nothing but praise. We are singing ourselves forward into the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more tears or sorrow or injustice or abuse or neglect or death or disease. Because Christ is our salvation and it's his story we take up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you give us words that we um, maybe are too afraid to say ourselves. Some of us may not even believe that it's okay for us to just, in a sense, put you to the task of answering our question, how long? Lord, may we believe that you, like any loving father, invites us into that space with our griefs and our sorrows and our confusion and our doubts. Lord, may you help us by your grace to see that your answer to those questions is the person of Jesus. And Lord, may it change us. And may it help us to tell a compelling story to our neighbors. It's in Christ's name I pray.